I don't know if anyone else has noticed, but it's extremely difficult to find the perfect ideal conditions. <laughs> you can spend your entire life trying to improve conditions. I don't think you ever quite get there. Fortunately, the Buddha was interested not just in improving conditions. Uh, he was interested, they say, in one thing, which is suffering and liberation from suffering. In his investigation into the nature of suffering and liberation, the Buddha made a very profound and deep discovery. And in many, many ways, an extremely simple discovery. In fact, in some ways, it's, it's in the simplicity. Come on in. That in some ways, it's in the simplicity of his discovery that makes it so difficult for us to get there. What he discovered was that in seeing things as they are, very, very clearly, that's what leads to liberation. So it's not about having a particular experience, a transient experience, but it's more about clarity, about wisdom. It's about, it's about cultivating those qualities that allow us to see into the true nature of our experience. And when we do, we're free. It's that simple. So much of our attention clearly is focused on the conditions that we live in, you know, trying to improve, make them better, make ourselves more comfortable, make things work. And obviously, to some extent, our efforts need to go in that direction. But it's important not to always look at conditions as the source of our happiness. Because conditions, as we can see now, are quite unpredictable. We're constantly in a state of change. Retreats are extremely unpredictable. After a couple days, you might have a sense of just what your retreat is going to be like. Maybe more of the same. Maybe it's going to get worse. It might get better, maybe. But that's really an illusion. That's something that's really in the world of imagination. It's important to recognize that, that each day that we live is a new day. We need to be in touch with that. Because when we lose when we lose that realization that life is new each moment, we begin to close down, we begin to close our hearts, and we don't learn. We don't learn. We don't learn to open to other possibilities. It is possible that you won't experience sleepiness in the next sitting. It is possible that the mind may settle down. It is possible once you experience peace and quiet that the next sitting might get restless. Life is full of change, and it's how we meet that change. It's how we meet those experiences that makes all the difference. And so at the heart of this meditative training that all of us are undergoing, this training, it's really very simply put, we're learning to pay attention. We're learning to pay attention. We're learning to pay attention with an open heart seeing if it's possible 
to be with things exactly as they are in this moment, in this present moment. So much of retreat life is really about that. You know, in the silence, you know, we're surrounded by people, but you know, we're really working with our own experience. You know, we're learning to be with ourselves, getting to know ourselves in a very direct way. Sometimes we think there hasn't been that much awareness. But think about the last couple of days. Aren't you much more aware of what the state of things are? Just after two days, just simply being with yourself. We make so many discoveries. And yeah, sometimes the discoveries are bad news. At the beginning, it can seem that way. But we're on the path. We're on that path of waking up. And that's where clarity comes from. That's the kind of wisdom that the Buddha is talking about. It's this direct, clear seeing for ourselves into the nature of our experience. Taking a look at ourselves, not relying on somebody else, not relying on secondhand knowledge. The teachings are obviously extremely valuable. They can save us a lot of time and a lot of effort by referring back to the teachings at important times in our practice. But at the same time, the work is about looking for yourself. That's where real faith comes from. It comes out of one's own experience. So this path of awakening that we're all on right now is a path of connection. It's not a path of withdrawal or disconnection. It's a path of connection. It's a path of intimacy. It's learning to be more intimate with yourself getting to know yourself, being more intimate with others also. You know, when you leave the space and you begin to start relating with others. When we begin to be more present, when we increase our capacity to be with ourselves, we also increase our capacity to be with others in a silent way. We begin to let go, when we begin to let go of the agenda in our practice, when we can be with things as they are, when we let go of the desire or need to control, that's when we can really become a resource to other people. We can learn to be very receptive to others and then learn to respond, less from a conditioned place, but more from a place of silent knowing, of just seeing, of being present and open. So, of course, we don't practice just for ourselves. So much of our practice is so that we can also become a resource to others. You know, we may all have aspirations to be compassionate, to want to help the world, and certainly the world needs it. But without the inner strength, without the inner balance and poise, you know, it's really impossible to help. You really often become part of the problem. Fortunately, this path of awakening and connection is accessible because it only requires us to nurture, cultivate, strengthen innate qualities that are within us. They're inner qualities, and they're all innate within all of us. Obviously, there are many, many people not interested in cultivating mindfulness or compassion or wisdom, but those are innate qualities. They're within us. And it simply is a matter of making wise effort 
knowing what that is, discovering what that is, the patience and perseverance, and even courage. It's something we haven't spoken much about on this retreat, but it really takes a lot of courage to be with yourself. It takes courage, it takes patience, it takes perseverance. It takes an interest in seeing things, in being clear, in being free. But the qualities that we're cultivating are already there. And practice is merely a practice. It's a practice. It's cultivating and strengthening those innate qualities that lead to freedom. And the key to being awake, key to wisdom, what unlocks the door, is, of course, mindfulness. Mindfulness is an innate power of the mind. It's a form of intelligence that all of us have. It's there at all times. All we need to do is tap into it, gain access to it, strengthen it, cultivate it. It's an open-hearted, it's a capacity, it's an open-hearted attention, an open-hearted knowing of what's happening in the present. So it doesn't judge the experience. Mindfulness doesn't judge the experience that you're having. If you're feeling sleepy, we may judge that with our thoughts. But mindfulness, if we're practicing it, will just meet that experience. It's not to say that that's how it feels so much in meditation, but that's the quality of mindfulness. That's the essence. Is it meets the experience, it opens the experience, it allows us to be aware of the experience, just as it is. It doesn't add, it doesn't elaborate, it doesn't evaluate, it doesn't have any agenda at all. It doesn't have any agenda at all. It's not caught in how things should be or how things shouldn't be. That's, again, the thinking mind and the conditioned thinking mind. Mindfulness is simply opening to the experience. You know, that moment that you're feeling your breathing and you know it, you can just feel it. That's mindfulness. It's not saying that the breath should be this or shouldn't be that, it should be doing this, it should be deeper. That's, of course, our conditioned thinking, thinking that things should be something other than they are. Mindfulness is simply with that experience, just as it's unfolding. It, allows, it brings light to the experience. Another quality of mindfulness, and this is one of the liberating qualities of mindfulness, and why mindfulness, living a mindful life, brings so much joy and energy. And the quality is one of freshness. Because it's open, it meets experience just in its nature. It meets experiences in an open way, open-hearted. It's very fresh. And it doesn't compare. You know, the comparing mind, that thing that kind of drives us crazy, that's our conditioned thinking again. Mindfulness doesn't compare. It's very fresh. And so it allows us to relate to the present moment. It allows us to relate to ourselves, to whatever experience we're paying attention to. It allows us to pay attention to others in a fresh way which is wonderful. You know, it's wonderful for us and it's wonderful for them because what that does, that fresh air quality to mindfulness, what it does is it opens up possibilities. It opens up choice. We can begin to taste freedom because we're not stuck in our conditioning. We're not stuck in our past conditioning. We're beginning to let go of our past conditioning Every moment of mindfulness that you have, and it doesn't matter what the object, 
of mindfulness is. It could be aversion or restlessness or sleepiness or the breathing or the body sensations. Every moment of mindfulness leads to freedom. It leads to freedom. We don't always know or taste the fruit of that freedom. But that's the direction. That's what wise effort leads us. Fruit doesn't come automatically. It takes some hard work. But we're heading, we know we're heading in the direction. Every time we tell ourselves, oh, let's be with his breathing. Oh, be mindful of that resistance, the aversion, or the doubt. Let's just open to it just as it is without trying to fix it, without trying to change it. We can do that later. If we recognize something that we need to fix later, we can do it after the retreat. There's plenty of time. But now is the time just to pay attention and open our hearts to what's coming up, to what's happening. Unfortunately, without awareness, we're subject to our conditioning. It's certainly what the Buddha discovered very clearly. He saw this in a very detailed, clear way, that without awareness, we're subject to our conditioning. In other words, we're subject to the conditions around us, and we're subject to our conditioned reaction to those things. You know, so if uh, the lights go off and we get angry about it, those are the conditions. Lights go off. We get angry. There's, there's the conditioning. And there's suffering in that, obviously. Clearly. I'm sure we don't have to debate that. What does our conditioning tell us about life? You know, How have we been conditioned? Whether it's in the culture, family, education. There's a couple of basic messages that we receive that really condition a tremendous amount of our thinking and response to life. And the t- kind of the two basic messages we often get is that um, we should cling to pleasure, that pleasure is good, and we should try to m- make it last. If it's not in our life, we should get it in our life as fast as we can. Okay? And that w- every experience we have, we need to enhance with more pleasure. Okay? And so a lot, you know, it's, it sounds funny, but so many of the subtle messages that we get really have a lot to do if you look at what people often give you advice about, never ask advice from people so often, especially if you ask from people who haven't practiced, so often they kind of keep pushing you and nudging you in the direction of pleasure. You know, if you feel better, you know, go out and get an ice cream, do something, you know, but go for that pleasure. Okay, that's a lot of the conditioning. The other message, flip side, is to avoid pain at all costs. If you feel any discomfort at all, get out of there as fast as you can, you know, not to experience pain. Pain is actually seen as a negative thing. Think about that. Pain is seen as a negative thing, a thing that should not be experienced. To me, that's such a setup for us. You know, it conditions us in a very deep way that painful emotions or physical pain in the body is a bad thing and that we should fix it right away. Unfortunately, the what that message does is it conditions us to be afraid of life. Because, of course, life is full of pleasure and full of pain. And when we start paying attention to the present moment, we see over and over again that we experience, actually we experience more pleasure than we think we do when we're being very present and awake. 
and we experience more un- unpleasant experiences if we're present and awake. It's part of life. It's part of the nature of life, really, is that there's pleasant experiences and there's unpleasant experiences. You can't have all of one or the other. So it's part of life. So it's training us not to accept life as it is and to look for happiness outside of ourselves into impermanent things. Cling on to pleasure and you'll be happy. Avoid pain and you'll be happy. And it's very misleading. It sets us up. So often what we find ourselves doing because of that conditioning around pleasure and pain is that we find ourselves moving towards experiences all the time, constantly on the move. You know, when the mind starts getting a little silent, I know this was definitely true for me in my practice, when my mind started getting silent, I saw over and over again how I was constantly moving like a shark, you know, going from one moment to the next, never really settling down, always seeking, moving into the next moment, sometimes even running into the next moment or running away from experiences, or moving away from experiences. Always kind of out of balance, out of sync. Never really finding a place of rest. Not really relaxing on a very deep level. Because of this running away and running towards experience. It's very disempowering to be out of balance like that. And what it does is it leaves us very ill-equipped to deal with life. Deal with life as it is. You know, on retreat, we spend quite a bit of time, especially early in the retreat, in talking about the difficulties of, of the in the practice of awareness and the meditation, meditative training, and and obviously, it's not that easy especially early on in the retreat, especially if you're new. It's quite difficult. It clearly requires a lot of patience and perseverance. But try living a life without awareness. Try living a life without awareness, you know, without some awareness practice. Of course, it doesn't have to be retreats. It doesn't have to be Vipassana or Buddhist meditation. But living a life without awareness is much, much, much more difficult than living a life with awareness. Because if you live a life without awareness, you're completely subject to your conditioning. You're completely subject to being pushed around by the changing experiences in life. One humbling insight on the path of awareness is just how powerful our conditioning is. A couple of you, maybe a little more than a couple, I've heard this story before, so you need to be patient. I mentioned earlier on the retreat, maybe first night or second day, that I had been on staff. And I was on staff here at IMS um, in like the mid-late mid, 70s, early 80s. For quite a few years I was often on staff. And back then it was quite a bit different, actually, um, we worked quite hard when there were retreats, but oftentimes um, there were really pretty lengthy periods when retreats weren't going on. It's not like now. There's actually a retreat, I'm sure, every week of the year, practically. Uh, and there's a lot more interest. The retreats are, of course, bigger. Uh, the Dharma is really out there quite, quite a bit. 
Uh, but back when we were here, the retreats were smaller. And I remember even one summer, this one teacher that was supposed to come and teach a 30-day retreat canceled. And we were off for 30 days. We had some fun, <laughs> you, know? Was, you know. We did our share of sitting and walking, but we also had a pretty good time. <laughs> so one thing we did, we get our, into our share of mischief too. And one thing that we did, um, one, sum, one summer, a friend of mine who was on staff, I think it was my first summer here, second summer here, he, he was a tennis player, so he asked me to, to play tennis with him. And I had never, I'd grown up not playing tennis. It wasn't really my game. I did play sports, but not tennis. And so he brought me down, got me a tennis racket, and brought me down to the tennis courts in downtown Barry. And they're really pleasant tennis courts, outdoors in the green. And I'd lived in the city, so this was really a nice thing. There was nobody playing on the tennis courts, and they were free. And so... We got into playing, and, and boy, it was really great. I mean, we just started having a really, really, really good time. Just, it was just great being in our bodies and moving and being outdoors and just getting into And we played pretty hard, too. You know, we really got into it. And so we started going almost every day. And one thing that started happening, which we didn't notice, uh, unfortunately, was that the tone of the games began to change. Uh, and that what started out kind of this very joyful innocence started getting like more serious <laughs> as we started heating up in the battle of tennis. And, you know, what started happening is we really started getting extremely competitive with each other, and, um, but still very enthusiastic about the game. And, again, you could, you could, if you had any degree of mindfulness, and we've been pra- practicing meditation for, for many years, and that's why, to me, this story is very humbling, um, all of us have been very committed to meditation for quite a, quite a number of years up to this point. Nobody, we, the two of us at least, didn't see that our conditioning started taking over and started kind of interfering in our joy. So we didn't see that. Uh, so we started getting into it and we started talking to other staff members about it, getting them involved. And, and pretty soon there was like five or six or seven people playing tennis. And of course someone, and you know, this, they were going through the same process that we were going. They first really liked it and then... The more they played, the more serious they were getting too. And before you knew it, somebody had this idea about setting up a tournament <laughs> and organizing this little tryout of a tournament. And, you know, we even had a prize for the winner, uh, some trophy or something. And, um, you know, and then we, so we got into the tournament. And it started getting, you know, like the stakes felt high. You know, we, uh, you know, we really started transforming this game into a nightmare, basically. Um, and we were teasing each other and kind of gloating over winning and, you know, it was leaking into our work life or non-work life. And, and by the end of the summer, you know, the tournament came and went and, you know, whoever won was happy, everybody else was miserable. Um, but by the end of the summer, nobody was playing tennis anymore. After the tournament, it just dropped like a rock. And what we didn't realize, and it took me actually a few years looking back at my life there, was, you know, we, we basically destroyed the game of tennis uh, <laughs> because of our unconscious conditioning. You know, just because of our competitive thing, we, 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 there was a lot of identification, obviously, going on. A lot of the old stuff was coming up for us. And we, many of us had played organized sports, and that's the kind of conditioning you get is you win at any cost. Forget enjoying yourself. Uh, You've got to win. 
Uh, and surprisingly, I, I just remember this when I went off on my walk today, that that very winter, we did the exact same thing with ping pong. <laughs> the exact same thing. Only we moved it indoors. <laughs> same thing. The tournament, the winner, no more ping pong. <laughs> So conditioning is very powerful. And, you know, the problem, of course, is it sometimes robs us of of joy, of just relating to the present and enjoying it. Instead, we often turn it into something else for one reason or another. Fortunately, mindfulness has an effect on consciousness, has an effect on us. It's, It's often very slow and gradual. Sometimes, you know, can have a you know, kind of a very powerful effect. Um, but most of the time, it's this kind of gradual, what we call deconditioning in the mind. Gradual letting go of conditioning. That's the effect mindfulness has. When we bring mindfulness, say we bring mindfulness to that feeling of resistance. All of us has, have had that experience during the retreat. some point or another, resistance to sitting or pain or, or the schedule or the food or the sleeping arrangements or... Uh, you know, we could go on. Um, but the moment that we bring mindfulness to our resistance, see, we're not, we're not creating a model where you're supposed to like everything or you're not supposed to have resistance because we know resistance arises under certain conditions for everybody. You know, that's the conditioned mind. Different conditions provoke different responses. But rather, what we want to do is train ourselves to be mindful of the resistance In other words, not be caught up in it, not kind of believe it, but to just open to that energy of aversion or resistance. Because the power of that, what what effect mindfulness has on that resistance or aversion, and you may not see it right away. Sometimes it takes time because the aversion is so solid and so tight and so strong and conditioned. But the effect that that will have over aversion in the long run, you may even see it on the retreat, by the end of the retreat, on certain kinds of aversion to certain kinds of conditions, is that the aversion begins to soften. We begin to let, we begin to let go of our conditioned aversion simply by bringing mindfulness to it. Now, clearly, aversion is a tremendously powerful force, whether it's self-condemning, self-criticism, judging or blaming others, anger, hatred, rage, fear, all forms of aversion that can be very powerful. And sometimes mindfulness isn't really enough. That power of open-hearted attention, it's just not possible. It's not possible to, be, to hold an experience with an open heart. And so often, you know, metta practice is really the most appropriate practice for meeting resistance or aversion. It's, it's what we call skillful means, applying wisdom. You know, what we want mindfulness to do is to lead to wisdom. Simply knowing you're having experience isn't enough sometimes. We need to know what's skillful, what a skillful response might be. And for some of us, if we're experiencing a lot of self-doubt or a lot of self-condemning, or the mind is feeling particularly contracted and tight, and you just can't be in the present, you don't even have to wait for it to get that bad. Try doing a little bit of metta. You can integrate it into your practice as a way of learning how to soften, relax, learning to 
try to respond with more unconditional love towards yourself and towards what you're encountering. Mindfulness begins to create this inner space. This inner space that allows something new to emerge. In other words, we're aware of some experience and that begins to create space around the experience so that we're not lost or automatically reacting in a conditioned way, in particularly an unconscious conditioned way. And so what that does is simply being mindful, say that there's resistance in the mind. What that does is it begins to create a little bit of space around the aversion itself. Now the resistance may still be there, but there's a little bit more light around it. We're holding it not quite so identified. You know, we don't identify with it so much. We're not holding it so tightly. We're seeing that we're experiencing aversion instead of being caught by the experience of aversion. So that creates a little bit of inner space in the mind. And that, in that space, it creates the opportunity for something new to emerge around the resistance. And what that new can be is wisdom. Instead of reactivity, instead of identification with that object, instead of identification with that momentary experience, we, be, we can begin to hold it with more acceptance and then begin to see its true nature. And one thing we'll notice if there's a little bit of space around that aversion is first we might notice that it's a conditional experience. It arises when we face certain conditions. And we might also become aware of the fact that when those conditions change, or simply by being aware of the aversion, it, it began to dissolve. It changed. It passed away. Maybe you have a lot of aversion in a sitting, and you're feeling really upset about how things are going and very resigned or discouraged, and you, that you just can't take it anymore. And then the bell rings. Condition changes. You get up and you walk away, and you're outside enjoying yourself. Where was that moment that you just couldn't stand? Conditions changed. We can also have that kind of transformation or change without the conditions changing, simply by bringing more loving attention to that difficult experience, learning how to hold it, how to relate to it, how to relate to the present moment with a freshness. That's a challenge. Particularly, I think it's a challenge for older students, people who have been practicing for a while. You know, sometimes it's very easy to develop certain concepts or ideas about a particular meditation practice, about a particular meditation period or experience that you're having, and then it gets in the way. Even all that, all that kind of past insight sometimes can get in the way of just looking at it in a fresh way, deepening your practice. And so you can kind of walk around being a very insightful person, but you're not really learning. You know, there's not a lot of growth. And so approaching practice, approaching your experience, approaching every sitting period that you have, oh, let's just see what's going to happen. Let's just see. We don't know what's going to happen. You could get fully enlightened, and I believe that. You could get fully enlightened in the next sitting. It could happen. It doesn't happen very often. (laughs) At least not that I know of. (laughs) But it could happen. (laughs) It could. So you never know. You never know. And you really never do know. You think you know, but you don't know.
Now the fruit that comes out of living mindfully. That's because that's what we're talking about. We're not just talking about one sitting or one walking. We're talking about living life, more awake, more present. One thing we talk a lot about at CIMC is being more mindful of everyday activities. And what we talk about here is being mindful of everyday activities. It's just that your everyday activities are considerably more limited in terms of the forms uh, that we do when we're living in the city, of course, when we're dealing with jobs and all that. But when we develop a more wakeful quality in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, when we begin to when we develop this capacity uh, that, first of all, this capacity at the beginning takes a lot of effort, but then over a period of time it does become easier. Uh, it does become much more natural to be awake and to be present and to notice where you are and how you're relating to it, you know, being much more sensitive and connected to what you're doing. Uh, the, the, what we talk a lot about is just taking every experience, whatever that activity is, Oftentimes we encourage people to take a simple activity like brushing your teeth or taking a shower or washing your face or having a cup of tea in the morning and taking those or walking to the car, walking to the subway, taking that activity and really doing it as mindfully as possible. To do it as mindfully as possible. And so often what people come back to report is one, it's not easy to remember to do that. It's one thing they say. But when they do remember to do it, what they notice is that there's a different relationship to what they're doing. In other words, they're doing kind of the same thing, but the quality of attention is different, and that transforms the experience itself. And that so often a a kind of learning or discovery or self-discovery occurs because they're paying attention to whatever that activity is in a very fresh way. It could even be washing the dishes. You know, in, in more advanced practices, it's being mindful and attentive when you're listening to somebody or being mindful and attentive and very present when you're speaking. It transforms the experience. What happens is there's a greater sense of connection to what you're doing. There's a greater sense of meaningful connection to what you're doing. When we are fragmented, when we are preoccupied, when we are somewhere else, there's a real disconnect that's happening often between our bodies, kind of what we're doing, in our minds, in our hearts. And we're kind of just on automatic pilot. And, you know, a lot of times what comes out of that is this feeling of discontent, kind of a sense of Ill, Ill at ease or discontent, or feeling like, you know, you're kind of wasting a lot of your time, or a feeling like wait, looking for the next moment. You know, you, you want to get done with the dishes so that you can do this. You want to take your shower so that you can then do what's next. Instead of saying, hey, this is what, I, this is what my life's about. Let's just do it, and let's do it wholeheartedly. And it's not an ideal. It's actually possible to practice that and to experience that, to experience your everyday life, ordinary activities with more of a whole heart. It's tremendously empowering, tremendously freeing. It brings a lot of energy into one's life when we can do that. Life is no longer so fragmented. Meditation practice is not divided into sitting and walking, and then there's the rest of your life. It's what you're doing is your meditation practice. So there's this connection that develops.
thing I want to say about living in the present or being more mindful and more present. I want to say something about thought, the place of thought. Because sometimes there's a lot of confusion in meditation practice in the first place. One confusion is that uh, we're anti-thought. You know, we just don't like thought. It's trouble. Um, you shouldn't think. Uh, if you're doing meditation practice or you're being mindful, you won't have thoughts. And then, of course, people end up scratching their heads wondering, like, when they really have to do a lot of thinking, be like. And does that mean that life is inherently suffering because we all have to think? Uh, and, of course, that's not true at all. You know, we're not anti-thought. There's nothing wrong with thoughts. In fact, again, we want to cultivate. It's so important to do this, and it's not always so easy to do, particularly when we're doing a concentration practice where we're highlighting this mindfulness of the first foundation, which is the body. It's so easy to get a notion that if you think, if you're getting, you know, if there's thoughts, then the, then you, you're not you're not progressing on your practice, and that you, that there's a striving sometimes not to have thoughts. And that, of course, creates a lot of tension in the mind. You know, a good example of this is the planning mind. You know, some people think, okay, well, if you're living in the present, what about planning mind? Well, planning mind doesn't have to be a problem. In other words, we need to be able to plan. You know, we need to be able to think about the future and, and to take care of business. Okay? You're going to experience planning mind at times in your practice. Okay? The problem with planning mind is that there's a tendency to get caught by it. And, and the problem is that oftentimes planning mind is compulsive. You know, it's really the compulsive quality of planning mind that creates the suffering. And so often we get caught in planning, or we get caught in that habitual planning mode because we're moving away from a particular experience. We're having a reaction to a particular experience. Like we may be bored with the way things are going. We're tired of watching the breath. We're tired of being here. And so we make a plan. And for most of us, we make a better plan. You know, it's, it's better than what we're in right now. Okay? And so that's a good sign. It, sh- it shows, you that, shows us that what we're doing is we're moving away through aversion into the planning mind. One way of working with the planning mind, certainly on retreat, is to try to, to make that commitment to being mindful when you start planning, when you start fantasizing, when you start imagining about the future. If you're mindful of it, you're in the present moment. There's no need to judge those thoughts. There's no need to even get rid of it. You know, that's not going to be a very helpful strategy because for many of us, it becomes very, it's become very habitual. But it's something you want to work with. You want to work with. So just opening to the planning mind, noticing it, you know, notice the energy of it. There could be anxiety or worry or desire underneath it. You know, quite often there is. Quite often anxiety or worry or fantasy and desire is fueling the planning mind. So you might notice that there's a lot of energy in the plan, a lot of excitement, maybe a lot of fear. So just noticing that, and once again, in this phase of the retreat, it's letting it go, making that choice, that conscious choice, to focus the attention again on the body and breathing. When you get out of life, when you get out of this retreat life, into your everyday life, we're going to need to plan. But when we plan, we want to be able to consciously plan. Not habitually plan. Not always plan just because we don't like what's happening now. Trying to escape it.
Some people bring up this question about analyzing and figuring it out, whether we want to figure out our experience or analyze things. And again, we're not anti-analysis. Okay? Sometimes we have to figure things out. Sometimes we have to problem solve. You know, quite often we have to problem solve. But again, the problem with analysis is that, one, is we tend to get addicted to it. And second is it's, it becomes very habitual. Every time we face a difficulty, the way we respond to it is to trying to figure it out. And again, the problem with that particular response, that automatic response to trying to figure it out, is that often it's a strategy, an unconscious strategy, to move away from a particular experience because we don't like it. Or maybe we like it, so we apply our analysis as a way of trying to cling onto it more. Okay? And that kind of analysis leads to suffering because we're reacting, either for or against it. We're being pushed around by it. And so the analysis is just another form of reactive conditioned thinking. better way to do it is to learn to open to your experience, which is why we don't encourage analysis here, but simply be with the experience exactly as it is without figuring it out. Let that one go for the time being. Let that one go for the retreat. Don't worry about that insight that you had yesterday. It, it, insights happen in the present. We don't have to carry them with us. You know, it's really about discovering truth or wisdom or freedom in the present moment itself. And as we do that, our capacity grows in order so that we can then meet the present moment with more wisdom. We don't have to worry. It's, we don't have to have a kind of a deprived uh, notion that if we have a peaceful sitting or if we have a particular insight, then we have to remember it. We have to keep it. We have to hold on to it. Let it go. Let it go and move into the next moment. Move into the present. Drop down into the present. So thinking isn't bad. It's, in fact, we want to be, uh, want to meet our thoughts with loving attention. Without feeding them, but just acknowledging, hey, the thinking's happening. I mean, we know that we know up here that thinking is happening. A lot of it, you know, it's just part of what what it's like to have a human mind. And so much of our thought, you know, some people are reporting just kind of how repetitive and boring their thoughts are. Um, and that's definitely an insight that you have in this practice. When you start hanging out with yourself, you can start seeing the tape loops. And oftentimes, it's the same one, or maybe two or three. They just keep going around and around and around and around. And it's not that creative. Actually, it's not that creative. It's it's kind of it's kind of repetitive, actually. Uh, finally, I just want to finish by uh, saying something about the Buddha's orientation, because obviously, he, what I'm saying is that he was interested in understanding the nature of suffering and also the uh, liberation from suffering. That's very important. He wasn't just interested in suffering, but he wanted to know what led to liberation. But he was extremely practical. And the teachings are very, very practical. They're not really high-minded teachings in that sense. They lead to very profound, deep insights and very powerful liberation, no doubt about it. But... The genius, I think, of the Buddha is that he was very practical. He saw that his discovery was something that he worked very, very, very hard for over 
according to the teachings anyways, lifetimes of working, going, moving in the right direction, applying wise effort. And it took him a long time to make this discovery. It was a very simple discovery in some ways. But he was also very practical. And when he, when he decided to teach, he wanted to teach something that people could practice. You know, some way that people could get access to this insight and this truth. And so there's a very famous discourse, one that you'll hear more about this as the retreat unfolds and as we expand the method as the retreat goes on, but the famous discourse of his is the Satipatthana discourse, or the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness. And it really provides the framework for the method and the approach. It's kind of like a kind of how-to be present. It really is. It's about how to be present. You could talk about present till you're blue. But if there's not a way to cultivate qualities so that we can be more present and more awake, where we can taste wisdom for ourselves, you know, the teachings would be very theoretical. It would be kind of very philosophical. And he wasn't really a philosopher, much more of a practitioner, somebody interested in really teaching people something that was useful. Um, and so he taught within this framework of the four foundations of mindfulness. And very briefly, the four foundations are the body. Second foundation is feelings, pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, neutral feelings, not emotions, but the feeling quality of an experience, like that ache in your knee. The feeling quality is unpleasant. That painful resistance that you might feel, the feeling quality is unpleasant. That taste at lunch, that maybe your favorite thing, that's a pleasant feeling. Or that peaceful feeling that you have on the cushion, that has a pleasant feeling quality to it. So that's the second foundation of mindfulness, is noticing the feeling quality of experience. The third foundation of mindfulness is mental states, emotions, moods. You know, we've begun to talk a little bit about working with the difficult energy of the hindrances. Those are, of course, mental states, emotions, uh, moods, reactions. And so third foundation is that. We'll talk more about that third foundation as the retreat unfolds. Finally, the fourth foundation is the foundation of wisdom or insight, seeing into the nature of experience, seeing the laws of impermanence, understanding selflessness better, understanding the nature of suffering, really seeing the big picture. That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And so what we're doing here in this retreat up to this point is focusing, and again, I think that's why I resonate anyways with this particular practice and this teaching, is that we're focusing on the first foundation of mindfulness, the body. And to me, that's the most useful place to begin this journey. Because awareness of mindfulness of the body, there's so many fruits that come out of that. Talk more about it as the retreat unfolds. But certainly, one of the fruits is it allows us to begin, at least, just to begin. It's not so easy, but to at least begin this journey of cutting through, through preoccupation with thought. You know, if we were left to our own devices, we would just think, most of us. You know, we would just think. So having some place to anchor the attention, it's what makes it possible, I think, to really go and experience deep liberation and to tr- transform your mind. Because here's the, we've got a body. We're breathing. As long as we're alive, that's what's happening. We do have a body and we're breathing. And so paying attention to that experience, focusing the mind on it, giving yourself a chance to develop mindfulness, 
you know, that innate capacity that we need to strengthen, simply by limiting the field of attention to the body, it gives a chance for the mindfulness to grow. It gives a chance to settle things down a little bit. And then when we expand the field of awareness, it becomes more possible to cultivate insight or wisdom in the other foundations. And so, early part of this phase of this retreat, it's the body. It's that first foundation of, of mindfulness where we're focusing. And the fact is, there's a lot of really good work that gets done in this training of being mindful of the body. A lot of very important things happen. So every moment that you come back, that you remember to come back to the body, to come back to the experience of the body in the present moment, whether it's the body walking or in other activities, doing your yogi job, staying in your body, every moment you focus your attention on your breathing, when you're sitting, every breath that you see or or make a connection with, that is what's leading to liberation and freedom. You're transforming your mind. Maybe we don't see it, but that's what's happening, slowly but surely. But it's the key, of course, is how, what Narayan spoke about last night, why we start with, the, with that at the beginning, which is perseverance, wise and gentle effort. You have to keep at it, not in a forceful way. You can enjoy it's okay. And we just want to soften and relax into whatever's happening. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.